Oh, is it Halloween? We missed Halloween, didn't we? My name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about games as they'd like to know. Well, the weather is still chilly, and the leaves are still dry, so let's put a spooky game in the spotlight this week. Let's talk about A Touch of Evil. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast. With me this week is the great and powerful curator of the Snakes and Lattes Library, Mr. Steve Tassie. Hello. I haven't seen you in a while, Steve. Thanks for coming back. My pleasure. All right. So games that, that tell stories are popular any time of year, but in True. the colder months of autumn, there's a distinct interest in games with creepier stories, horror stories. Yes. We've talked about Dead of Winter before and its zombie apocalypse stories. We've discussed Fury of Dracula and its Victorian Gothic stuff. We've talked about Arkham Horror and various other games that attempt to bring Lovecraftian cosmic horror to the tabletop. Yeah. But here's a genre you don't see too often, colonial horror. Stories in the vein of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Washington Irving, and Edgar Allan Poe. So, Steve, you're kind of the resident expert on horror stories at the <laughs> now, cafe. Now that Colin's gone, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I what think that's you, true. What would you say characterizes the American Gothic style of horror? Well, um, it has... A lot of similarities to just gothic literature in general. So it's got the um, isolation and the, the spooky house and, and that element. But it also carries um, a lot of weight with um, family connections mm. uh, and secrets, backstory, um, shame, a lot of shame and, and scandal uh, runs through the vein of uh, colonial horror. And corruption. Yeah. Oh, yes. Definitely big-time corruption. Everyone either has a secret that they're trying to hide and will do everything to protect, or they're uh, seeking things that they're not meant to know, and, uh, and that knowledge uh, brings their downfall. And this tradition, uh, you know, continues into the modern day with things like Twin Peaks and so on. We can see its lineage. Although gothic horror is no longer the, you know, the major form that we see, it's, it's still very much a part of that landscape. And it's still around. It pops up from time to time. Uh, Crimson Peak mm. from Guillermo del Toro, for example, while he claims it's not a horror film. Oh, it's a gothic it's, horror. It's story. pretty horrific. There's some terrible things that go on in that. Well, and... there's, there's scary and then there's Guillermo del Toro scary. Yeah. So, uh, now we've got a bit of uh, background in place, we can talk about A Touch of Evil. Not the Orson Welles movie, the Jason Hill board game by Flying Frog Productions. Flying Frog has a very particular style of game, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, very theme-heavy, very narrative-heavy, uh, and with a, some might argue, corny art style that uh, permeates their games, whether it is a American Gothic horror game, a science fiction game, a pulp adventure game, whatever game they are doing, um, they like an art style that incorporates uh, people in costumes being photographed and then having light amounts of uh, Photoshop or other photo editing um, brought to the pictures. I've said this before. I don't mind saying it again. The, the, a lot of people have trouble getting over the Flying Frog style. You know, they see these people who are obviously friends of the game's designers and people at the office, dressed up in costumes, having fun, being silly. 
and they for some reason i guess because they hate fun they 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 don't like it and i can't it's so charming to me i just it's it's wonderful they they're having so much fun being ridiculous and doing these great things it's like how can you not love this what is wrong with you that you <laughs> don't appreciate this I think some people, especially with their horror games, uh, Last Night on Earth, A Touch of Evil, I think people who want to be scared uh, <laughs> want a little more seriousness from the art style of of a game. I mean, okay, it's it's hard fine. enough for a game to pull off being scary. Sure. Um, very few really succeed. They can they can do tense, but actual scares the way a movie can scare you or even a book can scare you mm. doesn't really happen and i think that the um the hey my dad's got a barn let's put on a show sort of attitude that flying frog <laughs> brings to their art direction uh puts some people off because it it's a step in the opposite direction from trying to be scary and tense i mean i like it i i think it's adorable i uh I, I think well, there. You've got a background in community theater, so uh, and and professional theater too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but yes, it does. It definitely, you've, you've has. seen both sides of this. You, know, yeah. you can appreciate the slick, well-produced, you know, heavy-duty horror stuff, the the pro stuff, but you also have a love and a, and an affection for the silly amateur yeah. stuff and and the low budget. Yeah, uh, I I do love a good B movie. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I I think that it works. Um, but I understand why other people uh, don't find the enjoyment in their in the art style uh, that that you and I might. Well, it doesn't stop with the art style in the case of Flying Frogs games either, and certainly in the case of A Touch of Evil, the game itself has a very basic sort of feel to it. It's a roll and move game. It's uh, you don't see yep. a lot of those anymore. You every turn you're going to roll a six sided die. And you're going to count the number of dots on the top of it, and that's how many spaces you get to move your little plastic figure around this game board. And that's something that's almost considered verboten in modern game design. Yeah, very few games uh, still use... I mean, obviously, games that have been around for a long time and are still in production are using it. Your monopolies, your troubles, and and so forth. Um, But there aren't a lot of modern games that use the roll and move and the ones that do tend to try to find uh, something interesting to do with it uh with something like that's life you roll mm-hmm. uh, a die but you have multiple pieces that you could choose to apply that die to and you're going to be picking up pieces of the board with you as you yeah. go so that's another way that it factors in and then there are other games something like um spinderella the children's game right. about spiders and ants um you roll several dice and decide which die you want to use whether it's the die to make progress with your ants or the die to do something nasty with the spiders um, and this one, A Touch of Evil, um, it's just really very simple. Roll a die, move your piece that many spaces. Now, the good news is that the, most of the spaces on the board do something cool. It's true. It's fairly rare that you wind up rolling, moving, and then doing nothing. Yeah. It's um, Generally speaking, what you're going to do, actually, is you're going to roll, you're going to move, and then you're going to draw a card and read the card, and the card's going to tell you what just happened to you. Yeah. And sometimes you have to roll more dice to find out how that turned out. That simplicity, that really bare-bones style of design, where stuff kind of happens at you, is another thing that will tend to sort of alienate a lot of people from the style of game. But by the same token, it does make it very, very accessible. 
Um, and you and I, Steve, we both like, you know, the fairly complex, fairly challenging games. Yeah. Uh, yet I actually have a really strong affection for A Touch of Evil, not just because of the look of it, not just because of the theme, which is something you almost never see, but because of the way that that rolling and moving and drawing and reading has a tendency to lend itself to emergent stories that just kind of happen and develop on their own over the course of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's definitely a narrative-heavy game uh, in that you are a character and you are wandering the board trying to get clues and evidence towards uh, what is the horrible thing that is happening in town and how do we find it and how do we kill it. Uh, and so, yeah, the simple act of rolling and then moving and then drawing a card um, allows that narrative to actually come through uh, in, a, in a surprisingly strong way. Um, and these villains themselves also always give a very clear goal. You know, there's, there's a headless horseman terrorizing the town of Shadowbrook. You have to stop it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that very, very clear goal, that clear sense of this is what's going on, this is the villain... And yet that very open sense of what you do. Where do you want to go? Wherever you like. Yeah, it's a sandbox game in Mm -hmm. in a way. Um, And I think that the simplicity allows that narrative to come through because everything that you do, even though it's it's random based on the role, which where do I go, uh, everything manages to point you in the direction of the narrative which is a neat trick to pull off. So you wind up going into the old woods, which are clearly labeled the old woods. That's O L D E woods. Mm -hmm. So that we know what we're dealing with here and you draw a card and there's a picture of this. I mean, look at this guy. Yeah. He's not having a good day. (laughs) He's being attacked by tree vines and, uh, he's got his tongue sticking out. They've Uh, almost pulled the powdered wig from his head. It's great. And we've got flavor text pressing deeper into the woods. You are ensnared by a tangle of vines with a will of its own. And then it tells you what dice to roll and what happens and whether you get wounded. The other thing, too, is that being wounded or badly hurt in this game isn't necessarily a finisher. I mean, in the sort of tradition of this style of story, it's not actually all that bloody mm-hmm. until you get to the climactic scene, the, the final showdown with the big villain. Um one of the other things that I love about this game is the town elders. You've got this... Back on that theme of secrets and corruptions. Mm-hmm. You've got this row of six cards across the top of the board, which is this wonderful sort of woodcut style look to it. It, it looks really nice. It's got a very distinctive sort of style to it that sort of contrasts with the Photoshop-y uh, sort of characters that we see in a, lot of the, in a lot of the cards. I disagree with you on the board a little bit. I, I think the, the look is good. Um, but I find that because it is a essentially monochromatic uh, board, the text that matters is awfully awkward to try to read. I think mm. that from a, a usability uh, standpoint, the board is a failure. From a, this looks like it was a map that was framed and hanging in the local library mm. for 150 years. I think they did a good job. But from a, oh God, what does the covered bridge do again uh, standpoint, uh, I find it hard to, to use a little the bit. The text is a little small. Yeah. Uh, the advantage, I guess the, uh, the saving grace is that all it takes is one person at the table who's close enough to be able to read it and yeah. be fine. 
Um, that sort of shows up in the game's design too, as far as the rules. Like as long as one person knows the intricacies of the rules, because there are a few mm. weird exceptions and yeah. how things go. But but the, most most of the players at the table don't have to know what those are. It's almost like the person who knows the rules becomes uh, you know the storyteller or the narrator yeah. a little bit, kind of a referee almost. But um, getting back to the town elders, each of them, um, you know, Lord Hanbrook, Sophie the midwife, Magistrate Croft, Reverend Harding, uh, these are all people who are pillars of the community. And you've got they've got their portraits there on the board. And each of them has a card. There's a deck of cards called Secrets. And each of them has one of those face down underneath them at the start of the game. And to investigate their secrets, you have to, you know, you have to invest resources and, and cash in clues. And time. Exactly. And... Um, but it's important to do that because come to the end of the game when it's time to confront the big bad, you get to take some elders with you. Form a hunting party. For backup. But if you bring the wrong ones with you, uh, it's going to turn out that they have been behind this whole plot all along. They're either in league with the villain or they are themselves the villain. And, and their card flips over from this, you know, sort of noble, if uh, frou-frou looking person to a sort of a crazed, screaming, red lit version of themselves with a different name. And suddenly that respectable person who you thought had your back is now trying to stick a knife in it. <laughs> So in a typical game of A Touch of Evil, you're going to spend the first part of it sort of exploring around, collecting items, trying to power up, and getting to a point where you have a chance of taking on the villain. And meanwhile, people are going to start dying. At the end of every turn, somebody has to read a mystery card. And these mystery cards are always terrible things that are happening. And it causes this darkness tracker to move slowly but inexorably towards the end of it. And it goes off the end. That's game. The villain has won. But in the meanwhile, uh, the players who are either competing to be the one who's going to take down the villain, or they're cooperating to take down a more powerful version of the villain, or they're playing in teams, uh, cooperating with their teammates and competing with the other players, that's something you don't see in a lot of these games. Yeah, it's uh, not many games have so many modes mm -hmm. to play in. Uh, I think that flexibility is a real strength for this, because mm -hmm. you really do get to make it the style of game that you want, even though it's still basically the same structure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I've only ever played this in the full cooperative mode. Uh, I've never done the, the competitive version or the, the team version. But uh, The team version's really neat. The fact that you get all the same co-op uh, strategies, if you can call them. The, the, the only strategy in this game is deciding when to use these resources that you picked up. When to use your event cards, when to use your items, and when to save them for later. It's enough, though. And the other big uh, strategic decision that you have to make is, okay, do we have enough to try for the showdown now? Or should we wait one more turn and keep gearing up? Because mm -hmm. if you go for the showdown and manage to weaken the villain significantly, but you get kicked back, the other team is going to have a shot at it They're now. They're going to swoop in and steal your kill. <laughs> And uh, the game itself has uh, a lot of event cards and uh, accusations of treason and so on that can set up to really sort of facilitate that uh, that dangerous kind of decision making. But um, what were your impressions of the game playing in co-op mode? What, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did. Uh, as I said, I, I have issues with the usability of the <laughs> board, but uh, I do. I like the theme of the game. I like that it's not just. Uh, Sleepy Hollow the game right. because yes there is the spirit horseman or whatever they call him in, in this version but there are also other monsters you might be up against a vampire or a werewolf or uh, animated scarecrow the scare the evil scarecrow yeah so it it allows you to tell some different stories that are all very clearly inspired 
by the legend of Sleepy Hollow and works of its time. Yeah, that whole milieu uh, really comes through. But it's not focused right in mm-hmm. on that one thing. It's not, uh, let's kill the horseman every time. Right. And um, one of the other things that I love about it, I mentioned before, is how emergent storytelling comes out of this. In one particular case, uh, a friend of mine was playing as Lucy Hanbrook, who is the daughter of two of those uh, elders, elders of the yeah. town. And it turned out that one of them was the villain and the other one was in league with the villain. <laughs> so when it got to the final showdown, she had to murder her own parents. That was so gothic. Yeah. And uh, she was the only one who survived the final encounter as well. It was this horrifying, tragic, wonderful story and not something that I can easily find a comparison to in terms of having something that personal, uh, yeah. that individual that, that sort of arose out of it. Just not from something yeah, that doesn't right happen in suburbia. Um, <laughs> it doesn't happen in Arkham Horror. Yeah. You know, it doesn't happen in a lot. It's it, no, it might happen in, um, in Dead of Winter for sure. Yeah. However, Dead of Winter is a much, much more demanding game. Both mm-hmm. in terms of the time that it takes to play and in terms of the difficulty that it's quite almost anybody can sit down and start playing this right away if there's somebody at the table who knows it well enough to sort of mm-hmm. walk them through it. It can be an intimidating looking game sure. though. There's because lots of stuff. There's tons of different tokens. There's what about a dozen different decks of cards. It looks a lot harder than it actually is to, to play. If you try to teach someone this game, then yeah, you're going to be in for, but on the other hand, if you just sit somebody down and say, here, pick one of these characters. Okay, I'll take this one. All right, roll a die. I got a four. Okay, you can go up to four spaces. Where should I go? Try going to one of the named places. There's a deck of cards. Okay, I'll go to the windmill. Okay, draw a windmill card. Read this. Here's Do what happens it. to you. Exactly. It's it right away. They can get into it. Okay, what am I trying to do? All right, there's this villain here, and we're going to try and fight out where they are. We're going to be, okay, cool. So then next player's turn. It's so immediately accessible. Even with the, when you add a bunch of expansion sets that really add a lot more debt, more complexity to it, like the Coast or uh, something Wicked, these two big full-size expansion sets, which add more boards, more cards, more characters, more everything, um, the basic formula of the game remains the same, even when you add more stuff. And that was the reason why the first time I played Touch of Evil, I took my copy of Arkham Horror off the shelf, handed it over to my friend Jeff, and said, here, you can have this, I don't <laughs> need it anymore. So, Steve, is this a game that you would recommend at the cafe? I mean, we have it. It is part of the library. Yes, it, it is on the shelf. It's in our uh, horror fantasy section. Uh, it, it's not one that I go to on a regular basis. It's uh, kind of long. Yeah, but it, it's definitely there. Um, and at this time of year, it, it <laughs> sure gets trucked out by the game gurus a lot more than it does, say, you know, in the middle of March. Um but, uh, yeah, it's, it's not one of my absolute, I'm, I'm going to this, but when someone says horror as, as a, a thing they're interested in, it's definitely, uh, on my list of, uh, well, here are some things to think about. Okay, that'll wrap it up for this week. If you've got a game you'd like to see in the spotlight, tweet it to us at SnakesCast or post it on the Snakes and Lattes Facebook page. Steve, thanks for being here. My pleasure. All right. Snakes Cast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. Thank you for listening, everyone, and happy belated Halloween. Game on. Game on.